earth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death." Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Uh, let's pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we do worship and praise you. We confess as we come to this text of your word this morning to be uh, blown away by this cosmic vision that you have given John and through John us. Help us to see it with the eyes of faith. Help us not to come look at it out of idle curiosity, but help us come to it as ones who long to overcome, as ones who long to witness to you, to be bearers and truth-tellers, to be the representatives of our King, the rulers of heaven and earth. Give us a picture of Christ, what he's done for us, how he has defeated our great enemy, and that all that we suffer is just the last grasp of a defeated foe. As we study your word in this coming hour, give us insight. Give us your Holy Spirit that we might not just be hearers of the word, but that we would take it into our hearts, that it would be encouragement to us, and that we would also be those who are more than conquerors. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So again, today we enter a new section of Revelation. Last week, um, we concluded the series of seven trumpets, and now we enter a section that many people identify as the center of the book of Revelation. 
The seventh trumpet, just to recap, sounded the end of history and declared the saints' thanksgiving to God for saving them, establishing His kingdom, and judging the wicked. Now we enter a section of heavenly signs shown to John. Some people identify in chapters 12 to 14 another series of seven. It's not enumerated for us, but um, in the following uh, three chapters, we get seven times the phrase, I looked, or behold, or I saw. And today we see, see John uh, beholding uh, this sign in heaven, this birth, this warfare, and this miraculous preservation of a woman. So let's start with the birth. How would you describe this nativity scene? What strikes you about this picture of a woman in labor pains giving birth? Who is this woman? What do we think? <laughs> that is exactly my reaction <laughs> when I open this on uh, Monday. Yeah, right. Could the woman be Israel? Uh, absolutely. Um, the woman uh, is identified. I mean, let's look and see some of the things that identify her. And one of the things that identifiers is a crown of 12 stars. And 12 stars is often uh, used to refer to the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, in some of the um, Midrash, talking about um, especially the high priest um, clothing. Though, if you remember, the high priest breastplate had 12 stones embedded in it. Those 12 stones are often referred to as 12 stars. Um, so there's, um, there's a lot of symbolism in here that indicates that this woman is a representative, uh, a, you know, a symbolizer of the nation of Israel. Okay, what else? It's the mother of all those that yeah, so there it sort of, so if the beginning of the book sort of gives us this um, picture of the community of the faithful before Christ, the end of the book gives us a picture of the community of faithful after the coming of Christ. So we could take um, the designator Israel and see how it's, we have church later on, the whole community of this, the faithful, those who believe in Christ, and sort of just describe this woman as the faithful, um, the faithful of the Old Testament, the faithful of the New, the community of faith, we might say, um, both in the Old Testament and the New. We have the first side of she's, she stands for the church, for the whatever that. Um, yeah. So we have to. So. Um, who is she? So she, on the one hand, she can be sort of a collective persona, um, you know, this, this mother uh, that's giving birth to a child and then giving a birth to, to other children, or we identify her as an individual. And sometimes, especially in Roman Catholic traditions, it's identified specifically as Mary. Um, so we have to think about, do we understand it as collective or individual? Um, I, I want to make the case for collective. Um, I, I think it is uh, representative of this whole community of faith um, for several reasons. One, she noticed that she is fleeing to the wilderness for the exact same length of time. Earlier we saw the church fleeing in the wilderness. So just as we saw those faithful witnesses having to uh, persevere for 42 months or 1260 days or a Time, times and half a time, you know, we have that same kind of numerical identifier. Also because, I think because she's ruling, that she has a crown of 12 stars. Um, you know, this, this crown connoting the saints share in Christ's rule, and that's what we have later on um, in that great doxology in the middle of the chapter, where the, the conquerors are identified in the plural. They conquer, and as we see, they rule. 
Um, and then there are some other indicators. Um, uh, yeah, uh, one you'll really like. <laughs> I want to save that one because um, it comes up in the second half of the, the chapter. But I, I think you could, uh, there have been cases made for both collective and individual. I think as we go through the passage, I think it makes more sense as a collective. Yeah, and to think about, um, uh, and, and maybe I'll work into this now. Um, so one of the things, I've really been thinking a lot about this, and this is one of those ways you have um, uh, seminary professors with a bee in your, their bonnet, and then you know now that's the bee in your bonnet. <laughs> and um, I, I had an Old Testament professor who showed, especially the early narratives of Genesis and Exodus, depicting them on this as sort of a cosmic battle between the, the serpent and the seed of the woman. As we see in you know Genesis 3:15, you know he will strike your heel, but you will have his head. Um, the seed of the this promised seed of the woman coming, and you see in those early chapters of Genesis, this you know is that that seed that godly line going to be snuffed out? You know the, the word the seed keeps coming up again and again, and then we see it with all those those struggles of of women not bearing children. You know, think of uh, Sarai, you know, being barren. Is she going to give birth? You know, all those stories. So there's a way you can look at the whole Old Testament in light of specific women who uh, the serpent is trying to snuff out any possibility that this woman is going to give birth. Um, that, again, one of the things I think we're seeing here is he's giving us a widened perspective on events that we take as normal. I mean, he, he, John in this vision, sort of, you know, the, the birth of, if this is Christ, and we'll get to the, who the woman's child is in a moment, but if it's Christ, this is a pretty abbreviated description of, of Christ's birth, life, and ministry. Um, it's, it's pretty short, but it's almost as if we're giving a wider scope. So things that we usually focus in on you know, in the Gospels, this lengthy account of Christ's birth and life, from this huge uh, perspective of heavenly time, that, that John is being shown here, we see the significance. I mean, he paints it in sort of short period, just one verse, but we see the significance of that event for this much larger cosmic struggle. Yeah, James, you had your... I like, the, uh, I like that reading, I like the, you know, the class of giving birth, right? which is the judgment of the Lord, This dragon is not new on the scene. This dragon, and, it, and I think that's one of John's main purposes, is to, again, sort of peel back the curtain. We've seen in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament all these earthly actors, and now we see the evil behind all the evil that's, that's raised up against God's faithful people in the Old Testament, and now those who've been shown in, in Revelation persecuting the church in this present. You know, they've got a leader. Now we see him. We see this dragon who's been active since the garden and whose da ultimate downfall, you know, we start to see in this chapter and following. And continuing with your, your macro view of things, if you, if you look at this difficult childbirth, which we can, from the, from the birth narrative of Christ, it was not an easy thing being born in a stable manger, and Satan was there in the personification of Herod, and all through Christ's ministry, Satan continued to try to devour Christ, even in the crucifixion. So we, we continue to see these kinds of metaphors, it wasn't easy 
to all time for for the battle between good and evil has been there for all time. And it was specifically personified at the beginning of time, at Christ's birth and, and ministry, and here at the end of time. And it's all part of the same thread. And I'm glad you brought up Herod, seeking to snuff out the life of this Christ, uh, as we're shown in the gospel accounts. Um, which is one of the reasons, as I've been thinking about this passage, especially this week, to think about, you know, you know, we, we talk about, well, we've got nativity accounts in Matthew, and we've got a nativity account in Luke. John doesn't give us a nativity account. What? John does give us a nativity account. It's just John doesn't give us the manger and swaddling clothes and shepherds and he gives us angels. Um, but you know, he's painting, you know, again, we, we can so narrow in on the circumstances of life and ministry, and it's as if John in this revelation wants us to see those things in their ultimate significance and importance. Yeah, Mike. I think what's really interesting is that a lot of things in life uh, are very symbolic about what God's trying to teach us. So uh, Paul compares uh, the marriage between a man and a woman as Christ and the church. And you're talking about this, this agony of uh, bringing forth the child in great pain. If you look at the history of, of Israel, from beginning to end, it was painful. I mean, they were, you know, they were enslaved and in Egypt for a while. I mean, they, brothers are killing off one of their, you know, the younger brother was favored. You know, if you look at the, the 12 brothers, you know, they've got such a speckled history. I mean, some of them really did horrible things. And it's like their whole history is a struggle between obeying God and pursuing idols and doing what they feel like. And so you can almost see the picture of this, this pain that, that if you look at Israel as the mother of Christ, that yes, throughout history, until finally Christ was born, painful history of ups and downs, God judging them, God rescuing them, God judging them, rescuing them. It's a great picture of, uh, it's, you know, of, of childhood. You know? So it's very interesting to see these, these uh, parallels. Yeah, to see that language used, and um, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the sort of painful history of of Israel. Um, that's something we're going to get a lot of in our sermon today. Pain. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Just you know, warning you now uh, the the wrath to come. Um, but but that's something, um, especially the the. I want to get to the the kind of. Um, uh, checkered past of, of, of Israel um, when we get to uh, to the heavenly warfare and what it means for this dragon to be cast out of heaven because I think that having that that um, checkered history in mind really helps us see the significance of what this heavenly event means um, okay uh, so we, we sort of suggested that, well, more than suggested, <laughs> sort of stated in various ways, that the child is Christ. Do we like that? Depiction of this woman's child, um, this male child as Christ? What, what kind of descriptors do we get of this male child that would lead us to that kind of identification? Yeah, that specific language, and uh, and there John is is using language taken straight out of probably you know the, the most important messianic psalm, Psalm two. Let me we don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it for you. But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break 
strike them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. So there in that psalm that is the messianic psalm, this king who is going to come and rule over uh, Israel and the world forever and ever. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. Yeah, Ronnie. So that was verse 5 where he referred to the son of Baal who will rule all the nations with the next And then I looked at the next part of the verse too. And your child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So that could be um, the ascension. Yeah. Uh, you know, resurrection, ascension, I think are both in there. And, you know, it's pointing back to, you know, the figure who do we see enthroned earlier? in this book. You know, back in chapter 5, we saw enthroned the lion of the tribe of Judah, the slain lamb. Um, yeah, being swept up to his throne, and the fact that his throne is a heavenly throne rather than an earthly throne, again, I think, st strongly emphasizes the identity of this, this male child as Christ. Yeah, Tim. <laughs> Um, all right, so the 1260 days, and this is a number we've seen over and over again. And here we have uh, the woman fleeing into the wilderness, and she's in the wilderness for 1260 days. And then later, um, in the, we sort of return to the woman at the end of the chapter, and we have the, the, the dragon pursuing her. Um, uh, and pursuing her in the wilderness to the place where she's nourished for a time, times, and half a time at the end of verse 14. So that's the same, I mean, three and a half. So 1260, three and a half years, 42 months, uh, three and a half times, or three and a half years. So I, we, we've seen that number over and over again, and it seems to refer to this period of intense tribulation, this period where, I mean, it's, it's the period in which uh, the dragon uh, pursues, the period the woman is in the wilderness. Um, and, you know, you, we think of the wilderness in sort of two ways, um, as we think of the wilderness as how it's used through Scripture. The wilderness is the place of trial and testing. Uh, you know, think of Jesus going into the wilderness to be tempted. But it's also the place of God's miraculous provision. I mean, how could this mighty nation survive in the wilderness for 42 years um, if we take the Israel wandered for two years, then they got condemned to wander for 40 more. So that's 42 years. So it could be a reference to that earlier Exodus wilderness kind of experience in which God provides for them. Even though they're undergoing tribulation, they're also um, having this experience of God's miraculous provision. And that's something I want to come back to as we look at the final part of the chapter, because that seems to be the emphasis. The, the dragon pursues, and God delivers, um, and delivers, in, again, in very sort of significant kind of language tied to the Old Testament. So, and that goes to something James said earlier about the identity of the woman, and there's another kind of signifier um, that I want to see at the end, so we're going to come back to that. Yeah, Tim. <laughs> if we get to 1260, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, and by the way, according to one group right now, we've got, let's see, today's the 8th, so we've got 13 days, the 21st is, is it 21st? Is that the day that the boat? Uh, I don't know who it is. It's, it's billboards. It's on billboards. That's all I know. There's one out in Hudson or somewhere. All right. So let's get back into... Um, all right. So we move sort of immediately from this birth to heavenly warfare. What's going on 
here. What do we make of this scene of the dragon? So, you know, the consistent figure in these two scenes is the dragon. So we have this dragon seeking to devour this child as it's about to be born, but the child is, 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 is taken up into heaven and rules anyway, and now we move we leave the woman for a while, and now we move to this heavenly scene. So what do we make of the scene of the dragon and his angels being defeated in heaven and being thrown out? What does it mean for the dragon to be thrown out of heaven? And why, at, you know, why is that tied to this woman's birth? Yeah, Mike. I think it's uh, I think it's judgment. Uh, like the book of Job, you see that Satan still has access to heaven. He goes up there, and he I guess it's uh, the gathering of all the angels, and uh, and uh, Satan that one particular act is obedient to the period before God. He has to. He has no choice. <laughs> I think that the, with the coming of Christ and his completed work, uh, judgment is sealed. Satan was kicked out. I think this is, for, for us anyway, looking at this, it's, it's past tense. It's, it's already happened. Yeah, so with Christ, death and resurrection, you have this, uh, and notice how you know, the, the phrase John uses, there's no longer any place for them in heaven. And as Mike you know, takes us back to the, probably the most famous Old Testament picture of heaven, this picture of, of Satan appearing before God's throne to accuse Job, to bring case against Job. He's like the uh, prosecuting attorney in this case. So why is there no longer any need for this, as we're, we're, he's labeled a little later in this chapter, um, uh, the deceiver, this accuser? I mean, I, again, I was, when I saw this, you know, I was at a conference with Jerry on Monday, and, you know, during one of the breaks, I was flipped, well, I better start working on Revelation, flip to it, and it was like, what in the world? But then, as it sort of sunk in over the week, whoa, wait a minute, something enormously important is happening here, and something that um, we as Christians should really think about it, what it means that there's no longer any place for an accuser in heaven. I like the, uh, the parallel of Genesis, right? The, the, the accuser was there because uh, we were still on the curse of sin, right? And the curse of judgment. It appears that at this point, the accuser is no longer there because uh, they're no longer under the curse of judgment. So the judgment has been reality. There's no longer a place for the deceiver and the accuser. Yeah, it's this great picture. Again, it's, you know, we think of sort of immediate. Christ died on the cross for my sins, but John is painting it on that global. Here you've had one before the presence of God saying, why do you have her? Haven't you seen what she's like? She's only good because you uphold her. She's only good because, you know, the things you've given her. You know, look at all the horrible things you've done. But all that has been covered by the blood of the Lamb that we saw early in the chapter. They, he can't accuse God. And it's always, you know, an accusation against, you know, humanity, but it's really an accusation against God, you know, using us to, to accuse God of unrighteousness, using uh, us to accuse God of, of being corrupt. You know, how can you let this sin, how can you be an upright God and tolerate this sinful people? And the only way that happens is Christ. I like it's the blood of the Lamb and the word of the Testament. Yeah, this doxology that, and I really want us to sort of spend some time because the doxology helps us, you know. 
what, what's sung about or, or spoken by this voice in heaven. Um, some versions you'll get it as poetry, some just sort of listed as prose. But I mean, again, once again, we have this sort of breaking out in praise. And I think the praise here helps us interpret and understand what the, the significance of this event is. Um, and we see this praise in verses 10, 11, and 12. The salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ has come. The accusers of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. There is no more accusation going on now that uh, now that the kingdom of God, the authority of his Christ, now that that child born of the woman rules on the throne of heaven, there is no place for the accuser anymore. And they, notice the plural there, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Again, we have this shift from the kingdom of Christ, the authority of God given to Christ, that then is shown to us um, that we, again, as, as John earlier said, are a kingdom of priests, that we rule with Christ. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Wow. I mean, think about that. Um, I mean, again, to sort of, we, we, and especially we've had, we've been thinking about with uh, Passion Week and thinking about um, some of the passages we've looked at during sort of our Easter pause, thinking about what Christ has done for us. But now John is showing that, you know, again, it's, he's broadening it, he's widening it, he's saying, you don't even understand half the significance of what. Christ has done for you. You, you, you. you get a glimpse of, it doesn't just have effects for you on earth. This is rewriting what the heavens and earth look like. At one level, you look at this war in heaven and say, well then, this could be it. Why, why wasn't this yet? But this war seems to have been more of a cosmic wrestling match, where Satan is not killed, but he's thrown out of heaven, because there's more yet to come. And I, I really like the expression that he was thrown down. Uh, it's, a, it's a great metaphor. It's a, it's a lot of imagery there. Because we think of war as being there's a winner and there's a loser, and that's it. But no, there's more yet to come that has yet to unfold. Yeah, and it's the picture we've been given here, and, and that's the sort of woe we get. You know, it's the, I've got good news, <laughs> I've got bad news. <laughs> the good news is there's no longer an accuser in heaven. The dragon no longer has a place there. Christ taking his throne has thrown him out. The bad news, he's here. He's <laughs> left here. Well, the people who are left here are the ones that would not confess. Uh, yeah, or, I mean, it seems like, because we have her pursuing the woman later on and, and, and seeking to devour those who keep the commandments of God. So I don't think it's just he's, he's, he's thrown to earth to rule those who don't obey. He's here to wreak havoc among Christians, uh, those who testify to Christ. But notice the encouragement that we've, we've been given here. Um, you know, it, it's as if, uh, you know, John is saying, look, you might suffer now, but your suffering isn't a sign that Satan's winning. It's a sign that Satan's lost. And he's sort of like in his death throes, thrashing about in great wrath, but it's for a limited time. It's going to come to a close, and you just need to overcome. Persevere, because Christ has won the battle. Um, and what we see now is just the, the final last gasp of a defeated foe. Greg, you had your hand up a second ago. Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, okay. <laughs> James. It seems like the, the destruction is, is uh, which came earlier in the, the churches, right? Is this love not the life of the death, right? That this, this 
problem is mostly a problem if you, you know, if you, you want to hang on to your life in this world, right, where Satan is crashing, you know, causing that the characteristics of those that overcome, those that are willing to love and offer love. Yeah, and the emphasis on bodily life there. I mean, again, we're, we're giving this, this sort of heavenly picture and earthly picture. The battle for our souls is over. It's as John's saying. You know, Satan can't touch what Christ has won. So all he has left is to, you know, prick at our body. And as we've talked about a couple times, um, this semester, you know, the the instruction to us to fear not the one who can kill the body, fear the one that has body and soul, and we're sh being shown a picture of this this victory that's won, the accuser, the one who would seek to bring down our souls, to kill our souls, no longer has the ability to do so. Um, it's it's he, he he can lash out at the bodies, but those who are in Christ's hand, those covered by the blood of the Lamb, their bodies can be touched, but their souls have been secured eternally. Oh, I saw a hand over here. Yep. Well, I, I want to just go back to what the role of the earth is in this, because we, we, we did learn at the end of chapter nine. The rest of mankind who were not the light of life did not repent, etc., etc., etc. So what's left on earth at that point is not redeemed. Uh, yeah, but uh, so what? I think what, um, and I talked about this last week. I think this is a point we don't see the chapters. Maybe, maybe the best way isn't to see it as chronology. And and I mean, even at the beginning of this chapter, if we see this birth as Christ, we're going back in time right. to get back to. So again, it's sort of. She flees to the wilderness. The wilderness is in. She's clothed with the sun and moon, moon under her feet and a crown of the stars. And then, uh, and, and then another another sign appeared that the dragon. So if it's another sign, there must have been a sign. Which, you know, I, I'm not trying to too fine a point on it, but I'm saying you know, I think the, role, the earth has a particular role in all this. And I'm not exactly sure what it is, but it's. It's maybe more than just the other. Well, I think it's the Earth's role is what James said earlier. The Earth is the place where we give testimony. The Earth is the place where we um, we conquer by the blood of the Lamb. This the Earth is the sphere of our activity. We've had the sphere of the activity of Michael and these angels, you know, throwing Satan out of heaven, and. You know, they've won the battle. Christ has won the battle. But this is the stage in which we wage war. And that's the war we see in at the, the last verses of this chapter. The, the dragon pursuing. And that word for pursue used uh, is also sometimes translated persecute. So, I mean, it, it has elements of both. And you can sort of see a, a very... Um, active persecutor, someone who really wants to persecute the church, pursues it. You know, think of Saul as a persecutor of the church, you know, getting this letter so he can go persecute the church in Damascus. You know, he's not just content to persecute the church as he finds it. He, he pursues the church. So that word there, um, it, it's giving us this, again, this cosmic significance of us experiencing earthly persecution. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I think it really makes the most sense to me right now is that it's not necessarily chronological. Yeah. Because you know, if you can't have the dragon pursuing those who keep the commandments of God and all the testimony of Jesus on earth, if the only people left on earth are those who are unregenerate. And so I think people who try to put too fine a point on it and, and claim it as as not simply metaphorical at, at times run into trouble when, when they think, and, and then you get into Clarence Darrow's arguments. 
Yeah, it's, it's how we're moving in the cycle. He's coming back and retelling uh, events again and again. And last week I used the parallel of sort of going up a lighthouse and sort of having these windows to look out as you spiral up that lighthouse. And you, you might be looking in the same direction. Or the Bunker Hill Monument, if you've ever climbed up the Bunker Hill Monument, which again, I did with a four and six year old. Um, when it, and it's not air conditioned and it was July. <laughs> We love those windows. Um, we love those, those stopping places. Even though we're, we're looking out to the same direction toward Boston, you know, each time. We're, and now, you know, as we cycle, enter this next cycle, we're moving into sort of more and more cosmic perspective on events. And now it's as if these, these visions John is, is being shown is giving us history from a much wider perspective you know it's like how you know you can on digital cameras you know you can have that narrow in kind of focus or you can do it widescreen and you know you see different things when you you, you know like can you focus in you really notice stuff that that you know it's Again, digital photography, the detail that's picked up, you know, it's amazing. But then you know, sort of zoom out and you're shown the sort of wider spectrum of detail. That's amazing too. <laughs> um, so I, 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 again, I think it makes more sense to me if we don't look at it chronologically, if we look at it as sort of, you know, we're having visions to show us human history again. And, but the message is always sort of the same, and it's the message James pointed to earlier. It's the emphasis over and over um, from the seven letters we saw um, to... Um, uh, you know, in that first series of, of seven, um, uh, uh, seven woes or destructions falling upon earth, you know, that these, uh, the, the emphasis is on the, for the church to persevere, for the church to overcome. For the church not to uh, not to give up their witness, but to let their lamp stand shine brightly. To not worry about those who kill the body, but to serve their king who's won their souls. If the earth is in the foot of the fall, and man has a relationship in this cosmic battle, I do believe that a cosmic battle is a good movement. Now in Hebrew, in our Hebrew study chapter, we were talking about how you know Christ was went 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 before us instead of the, the holy Jerusalem behind the veil, and uh, we talked about how you know when we are in heaven, we'll actually be greater than the angels to a certain extent, and so man has a a very big role in this, even though he's this cosmic being with great power beyond what we could probably even imagine. Yeah, we have a role in this cosmic battle. And that's where I think these, these last chapters, you know, the emphasis on the dragon's fruitless, notice it's a fruitless pursuit of the woman, um, and notice how she's delivered. And this goes back to something James said earlier. Hmm, where have we heard wings of an eagle before, James? This <laughs> Exodus 19, let me just read it. Now you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation." The dragon's pursuit of the woman, I think, is a sign. And the woman's miraculous deliverance over and over again. She's in the wilderness, she's being pursued, but she's being nourished. She's being protected. Even the earth itself is coming to her aid. 
Um, you know, she is, uh, and again, uh, I, I'm really glad uh, Greg used cosmic battle, because I mean, that's where a lot of these scenes we're going to be seeing in the next chapters is has this kind of warfare imagery. And it shows our role in that warfare, in that cosmic warfare. And the emphasis that um, John's giving here is that God is protecting his people. That Satan is defeated. He's thrashing out against um, humanity, but Christ has won the decisive victory. And the purpose is to encourage the readers, to encourage us to persevere in their witness despite persecution, despite opposition. All the earthly persecution and some of the images that we talked about Herod earlier, you know, Egypt is sometimes depicted as a dragon. Babylon is sometimes depicted in the Old Testament as a dragon. Sometimes these specific earthly powers are des described uh, in the language of their cosmic head. So we see ourselves as not just sort of, um, uh, you know, we should see ourselves as fighting evil, um, fighting an evil that's defeated. And all those moments we think evil's won, we see the church suffering, we see the church persecuted, we see the church being uh, um, attacked and seemingly snuffed out. What John is saying is that's not a sign that Satan's won, that's a sign he's lost. And he's doing all he can to fight a battle he knows he's already lost. Um, he knows he's defeated. You know, that, that great verse, you know, I said it was good news, bad news, but it was actually good news, bad news, good news. So the devil's been defeated. He's been cast out of heaven. Bad news, he's on earth. Good news, his time's short. His time's limited. And this goes back to, to Tim's you know, question about the 1260 days. And three and a half is half of that perfect number seven. He doesn't get to persecute unto completion. He gets to persecute for a short time, a limited time. There's a time set on his, his death throes before he expires. And, and that's the moment we live in. We're living in the death throes of evil. But we're we living in it, um, testifying to the one who's won the battle. I think he, I go back and forth. I think I've said this before. I go back, as we understand tribulation and revelation, I think it talks about everything post-revelation is the church is under tribulation. But then there's also this talk of great tribulation. Um, so is there a period, a specific period, where this tribulation intensifies? And, you know, I, I, I waffle. <laughs> I, 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 you know, some days I want to see it as um, the entire experience of the church after Christ. You know, that this, this, this time, times, and half a time, this is the church age. This is the, the, this is the devil in his death throes. Uh, he, he is lost. But there's also, I mean, there seems to be an intensification, I think. Um, so uh, I don't know how, I mean, I, again, I, I waffle. <laughs> um, I, yeah, so I, 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 don't, I think there's biblical ground to make both cases. Which is why I waffle. I don't think the evidence is 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 you know dramatically clear on one side or another. I think this passage seems to indicate that it's that church age, um, but there are other passages that sort of seem to indicate, you know, it's this, you know, like that three and a half years the last time we saw it. Um, with that um, that pause, and we saw the, the the witnesses, and you know their um, their dead corpses. 
being trampled upon, left unburied, the whole world rejoicing. You know, is that our current experience, or is that a particular experience that the church is going to have? You know, at that moment that you know, because again, that picture we saw them being immediately raised, Christ being ascended into heaven. You know, all of humanity going whoa. <laughs> so that when that picture seems to me sort of more kind of a particular period of time, whereas this one seems to me more the entire scope of time. Now, how we put those two together, and y'all all know I'm a big fan of both. And um, prophecy works that way. God can you know talk about one event, or seven events with one sentence. Um, you know, eh, yeah, I wrestle. There's also the, there's the clear right? The warning from the clear here. And of course, at the very end, you know, when it all ends, is, is the least clear, something like that, right? Whereas now that we're in, which you did a great job of describing, you know, how today's passage reflects the now that we're in, where you know, say the thing that you did, but it's not that long. Um, so I think that that is more clear because that's where we how it all ends ultimately. You know what the last you know twenty minutes are like, or last seven hours, or seven years, or whatever. That might be less clear to us than than the, than the world that we live in now. It won't be contradictory, but we'll work from the clear to the less clear. And the emphasis, again, is, I think, always on how we should live now. Um, it's not just to prepare us how we're going to live in those last days. It's about the message, again, over and over, is for us to overcome now, for us to persevere now, for us to not give up now, but to fight the good fight, knowing that Christ has won the battle. Yeah, will not love our life yeah, that is the sign of the one who has, um, is the sign of the one who's overcome. All right, we've hit our time, so um, let me close this in a word of prayer, but thanks for a great discussion today. Almighty God, what a glorious picture you give us of human history. This picture of our lives being part of a cosmic battle between good and evil. And we have this picture of this dragon who has sought to devour us from the very beginning. Who thought he had triumphed over you with the death of your son on the cross. But the moment that dragon thought it won the greatest victory. It suffered the greatest death blow. That your death, resurrection, ascension, ascending to your throne in heaven means an end to his days. That his place is no longer in heaven. That he has been thrown down. That one who accuses us because he can no longer accuse those who've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That he can no longer accuse those who bear your testimony. So we can go forth without fear of him. That though he might strike out and lash against the body of your church, you have won the battle. And it is our task in this cosmic battle to bear witness to your truth and to persevere even though they might kill the body. That we would value you more than any earthly possession. That we would value you, O King of heaven and earth. We ask it in the name of our King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.